Thank you for having me. Um, as Pete said, my name is Ben. I'm married to Hanel. We've got three kids, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And we planted a church out of here a year and a half ago now. And as Pete said, we get to enjoy everything that's going on at um, St. Peter's in Brockley in South East London because of your generosity. So we are so incredibly grateful for KXE, for all the support that you give us. But also, originally, when you gave us a financial gift and you sent people with us and you prayed for us and you've invested so much time in us and through us and so as a result the stories that we're really enjoying now at St Peter's and we're having a lot of fun all the fun that we're having you guys get to have in and through us as well and likewise we get to enjoy all the stuff going on at KXC and so we're incredibly grateful so thank you for that and thanks for having me I've got a mate called Andrew who works for St. Peter's and he runs something called LSSM out of St. Peter's. It's kind of like our Hogwarts for Christians. And he was walking from the church down to Brockley Station one day. And on the way down to the station, he felt like God asked him to stop outside of a building site on the road and to offer to pray for one of the builders. And so he's walking down and he stops and he grabs the nearest builder to him him and says to him, hi, my name's Andrew, what's your name? And the builder says to him, oh, my name's Andrew too, and they have a little chuckle about that. And then Andrew says to him, listen, I'm a Christian, I go to the church up the road, I feel like God's asked me to pray for healing for you, do you have any pain in your back? To which the builder says, funny you should say that, I do have pain in my back. It's probably a high hit rate on a building site. And so he puts his hand on his back and he starts praying for healing for this builder. As he's praying for healing, the builder suddenly goes, whoa, why is your hand so hot my back's heating up and the guy carries on praying for him and as he's praying for him he starts to feel his back loosen up and he tries it out and then he turns to my friend Andrew and he says I have no pain in my back whatsoever anymore and so Andrew says to him brilliant great to have you always welcome at church and he goes on his way to the uh, the tube he comes back a couple of days later and he's walking back up the hill to the church from the station and as he passes the building site this bloke on the scaffolding calls out to him and goes oi oi you come here and so Andrew goes over to the builders on the building site you are you the one that prayed for Andrew last week and my mate Andrew who's a bolder man than me was like yes yeah that was me and so this guy Tony who happened to be the boss of the building site actually comes down the scaffolding comes to Andrew um, my mate Andrew it's getting confusing now and says to him his back has been totally healed and he won't stop talking about it it's amazing and then he was like and I've got this thing with my neck like would you mind if you just pray for my neck right now and literally my mate Andrew's got a line of builders lining up to get prayed for for healing and as they're praying for healing he calls up to the other guy Andrew who originally had his back healed and back Andrew comes down from the scaffolding and comes up to my mate Andrew and says to him you wouldn't believe this but 30 minutes ago I said to God if you are real will you send me another sign as if the back wasn't enough would you send me another sign that you're real and then I'm in and then my mate Andrew ends up going up the road and he sees him again and he gets to pray for him and he says you should probably get baptized go to a church anyway a couple of weeks later my mate Andrew comes to me and he says listen Ben you need to go take that guy a bible 
you've got to go take him a Bible. Like, there's stuff going on on that building site. He needs a Bible. At which point, I was like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to do that, Andrew, for a number of reasons. First reason, when we had a clean out of the church, when we arrived, I accidentally threw all the Bibles out of the church. And I was still paying for it. And people were still complaining about it. We didn't have any Bibles. I managed to find one. Second reason, really, if I'm honest, is I make that route to the tube stop on a daily basis. And that is actually quite a scary building site. It's one of those vocal building sites where essentially everyone who goes past it gets an insult or uh, a compliment if you're female. Uh, and it tends to be quite vocal. So what I tend to do is when I go towards this building, I cross to the other side of the road because I don't want to be interfered with and I go down on my way. And he's telling me to go and take a Bible. Anyway, I finally pluck up the courage to go take these guys a Bible. And I'm walking down. I go to the building site and there's a bloke on the scaffolding. I said, mate, listen, I'm the vicar up the road. And he goes, pie and liquor? You're the pie and liquor? Anyway, that's Cockney rhyming slang, pie and liquor. And um, says to me, I'm like, I've got a Bible for Andrew. Apparently he got prayed for by someone from church. He goes, oh, he's not here. He's actually down at the Weatherspoons. Um, it was early in the morning. And... Um, <laughs> He says, but strangest thing, like Andrew, this guy Andrew came in this morning and he's bought a new Bible and he's really proud and he was showing it to everyone. I was like, brilliant, I don't have to do it. He's already got a Bible. But then the guy says to me, but he opened it up and it's all in this weird old English and he doesn't understand the word of it. He doesn't know what it's talking about. And we're like, we don't know what it's talking about. Anyway, so that meant I had to go give him the Bible. So I go down to Weatherspoons and I walk into Weatherspoons and there is a huge gathering of builders all sat around this table. They were drinking, having breakfast. And I go up to this table and I said, sorry lads. And I was trying to use as kind of colloquial language as I could possibly muster. Um, Sorry lads, Uh, is anyone here called Andrew because I've got a Bible for you? And they just stare at me. Most uncomfortable 10 seconds of my life, just looking at me. (laughs) Who's this guy? It's Weatherspoons. Um, And then eventually this guy goes, yeah, I'm Andrew. Um, It was me. And and I said, brilliant, I've just come to give you a Bible. This one's way more understandable than the other one. And the guy was like, that is amazing. And then in front of the whole table of builders, he starts saying his testimony again and starts talking about everything that God has been doing in his life since then, tells them all about the sign that he asked for. And then Andrew comes back up the hill And he has this whole table captivated. And then at the end, we got to pray for a bunch of different people around the table. And Andrew comes to me afterwards, after we've been praying and talking for a while, and he says... Um, I found a church where I live in Orpington and in two weeks time I'm going to get baptised in that church. Isn't that an amazing story? <laughs> and so, um, so obviously I said to him, listen, like there's a thing in Christendom called standing orders. You always set them up with the original church that you came to faith in. You don't do it with the new church in Orpington. He didn't really understand what I meant. I hear this phrase a lot in church. This phrase seems to go around a bit in church. If only, if only our experience of church, if only our experience of Christianity was like that of the experience of the early church in the book of Acts. If only God was still moving in the same kind of power he did back then today. Why isn't it happening? If only we had church that was like that. And I say that all the time. It's something I talk about a lot. I'm frustrated as I read Acts and as I read the Bible. I say, God, why isn't it like that now? And I've been thinking a lot about that attitude and that phrase. And here's what I think we're really saying. Sometimes, might not be all the time, but for me in particular. What I think I'm saying when I express that frustration, I think what I'm saying to God is, God, why have you stopped doing what you're doing? 
It feels like you're not doing it anymore. And essentially what I do is I put the responsibility, I put the onus back on God to start things up again. And here's what I think the effect it has on me as a Christian. I think it means I start to become passive. Now, passivity doesn't always look like we sit around doing nothing. I think what we do, and I do this all the time, is we start organizing lots of prayer meetings. And we come together in prayer meetings and say, Lord, would you move in power like you did in Acts? Would you move in power like you did in the Bible? And essentially what we're saying is there, God, please can you do it? Could you please do it because it's not happening? And sometimes I think God looks down on us and says, actually there's two people there's two parties to this story what do I mean by that well I think Jesus has a little bit of a different take on our involvement in heaven coming to earth which is what the story of Jesus is all about at St Peter's we've been going through the book of Mark and essentially the big idea of the book of Mark is heaven and earth were never meant to be two separate places and the story of Mark is the story of Jesus bringing those two places back together again in himself and as part of the story of Mark he's also trying to get his followers to participate in that process to participate in bringing heaven and earth back together again the disciples were supposed to be a part of the solution and so therefore as you go through the book of Mark you constantly keep reading about Jesus encouraging his followers to do what he did to be a Christian is to become like Jesus is to be with Jesus become like Jesus and then start actually doing the stuff we see Jesus doing in the gospels and so I'm going to read a few stories and through these stories I want to emphasize the role that we have to play as Christians in the coming of of the kingdom. So the first story is from Mark 4. If you've got a Bible in the pew, if you've got your Bible with you, open it up Mark 4. Um, you can read along in, uh, on your phone, on the app. We're going to go through quite a few stories, so it might be a good idea to do that. Otherwise, you'll have to take my word for it. Mark 4, from verse 35. This is Jesus calming the storm. A moment in the gospel where Jesus reveals his true identity, who he really is. He's God in human form. It says this, that day when evening came, He said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. What's going on? in that story well when we read stories like that what we want to do is we want to question the things in the story that seem quite unusual we want to question the things that seem a little bit off whack that we actually need to explore and think about so other than the fact that Jesus calms a storm and tells the waves to stop and that's pretty remarkable forget that for a second there's a strange line in there where it says this he says to his disciples after calming the storm he says why are you afraid do you still have no faith that seems incredible 
incredibly unfair. These disciples were professional fishermen. They weren't just professional fishermen. They would have fished on the exact same lake that they were on with the boat with Jesus at this point in time. They would have experienced storms on this lake. So for them to be fearing death during this storm would suggest this is one heck of a storm. This was a storm to end all storms to the point at which professional fishermen are terrified that they're going to drown. And so therefore they do the thing that anyone would do. They wake up Jesus and they say, Jesus, can you help us right now? And Jesus calms the storm. In a way, that could be seen as a really successful prayer. Here's a problem, storm, we're going to die. Here's a solution, Jesus. This is what we do in prayer. They had Jesus there at the time. We now do it in prayer. We say, Jesus, help us, we're going to die. And then Jesus wakes up and he answers our prayer. That's a really successful prayer. In fact, it's a little bit like it's one, two, three. It works perfectly. Any normal person after that kind of prayer would be like, brilliant. Jesus, answer my prayer. It raises faith levels. It's amazing. But instead, Jesus turns to them and says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Seems a weird thing to say, right? Unless what Jesus is starting to try and teach the disciples is that you guys are are to become, are starting to become a solution to the problem. Instead of me stilling the way, stilling the storm, you could have done it yourself. Is he expecting them to start stepping up? Well, he explicitly says that he wants them to step up in the next chapter. This is chapter 6 from verse 6. This is when he sends out the 12. It says this. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village and he calls the 12 to him. These are his 12 kind of closest followers. And he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over impure spirits. And then he tells them to take nothing with them. And um, then they come back and they went out and preached. It says in verse 12 that people should repent. Same message that Jesus was preaching. They drove out many demons, they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them all. So this is explicitly Jesus saying, I want you to now become part of the solution to the problem we're seeing. I'm giving you authority and I'm sending you out to do it. And that word authority there is literally what it means. It's an ongoing authority. It's not something you get given once and then you have it taken away and you have to go back and get it again. It's a little bit like um, if I were to get someone to try and mow my lawn, and I use this as an analogy at my church at St Peter's in a manipulative way to see if anyone wanted to mow my lawn because I have a strange uh, situation whereby we have an unusually large lawn and I hate mowing lawns and it's particularly large it takes me about three hours to do so I said St Peter's imagine imagine one of you came to me and said I'd really love to mow your lawn Ben and I said to you here's the keys the mower's over there come whenever you like I'd love to mow you as much mow it as much as you like thank you very much really appreciate that and then imagine if that person who was then to go in my lawn did it once and then came back to me and said would you want me to mow it again I'd say yeah well yeah I gave you a key I'd love you to mow it again and then they come back to me after doing it a second time would you want me to mow it again well yeah I gave you a key the, the mower's there would you please mow it again and then fourth time they keep coming back to me the thing then the point is that when Jesus gave his disciples authority he gave it to them permanently it wasn't like he was going to take it back the next second and then say you're going to have to keep coming back to me to get it again they already had it And so they would therefore then, from this point on in the story, start to participate in bringing heaven and earth back together again. So let's see how they got on. Here's the next story. Flip the page. Feeding of the 5,000. Disciples have the authority now. And it says from verse 35, by this time it was late in the day. So the disciples came to Jesus and they said this. They said, it's a remote place and it's already very late. 
Jesus send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half of a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave it to the disciples to distribute among the people. He also divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate, they were all satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men and women who had eaten were about 5,000, which probably means women and children involved. There's 10,000 people that have just been fed from five loaves and two fish. Now, in Luke's account of the story before about the authority, about Jesus sending people out... Uh, Luke tells us that the disciples come back to Jesus and they're excited about everything that's happened. They said, you wouldn't believe it, Jesus. We saw exactly the same things happen at our hands as we have at your hands. And Jesus starts to get excited with them and then he says to them, don't rejoice in the fact that demons submit when you pray. Don't rejoice in things, but instead rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's he saying now? He's saying, you belong to heaven now. You can start thinking as someone who belongs to heaven. And then the next opportunity they have to do that, they come to Jesus. And they come with a human solution to a human problem. The problem is no one's got anything to eat. And Jesus instead, back to them, says, I want you to start thinking like people of heaven. What is heaven's solution to what's going on right here? And some theologians get all caught up on when this miracle actually happens. Did it happen when Jesus prayed for the loaves and the fish? Did it happen when he handed it to the disciples? Did it happen when the disciples... It seems pretty obvious from this story that the miracle happened, the loaves and the fish were multiplied when the disciples started handing it out. This is why Jesus says right at the beginning of the story, you give them something to eat. And he's not saying pop down the shops and buy it all. They don't have money for that. He's saying you think as someone who belongs to heaven and do something miraculous here. Next story. Literally the next one along. Jesus walks on the water. This is like a mirror story of the story of Jesus and the disciples in the boat. It says this. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them he went up to the mountainside to pray. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them. He said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed down into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. And then Mark, with the beauty of hindsight, adds this little editor's note here, this commentary. He said, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They'd not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Here we start to hear about a little bit of the problem as to why the disciples aren't getting the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach them. Essentially, they are approaching problems from an earthly perspective as opposed to looking at problems from the perspective of people who belong to heaven. 
And Mark had realized that with hindsight, and so he adds this thing. Their hearts were hardened because they hadn't understood about the loaves. Next story, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Mirror story of the 5,000. Um, chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said this, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. He's literally setting them up to win here. This is a repeat story of something that has just happened the takeaway from that story was you're supposed to do it don't think of earthly solutions you are supposed to do it think of someone who belongs from heaven and in this story basically the disciples come to exactly the same problem it's almost like Jesus sarcastically is outlining line by line have you seen this before do you think this has happened before here's how the disciples reply and they say to him but we're in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them and Jesus probably went you idiots you idiots I've literally set you up to win here how many loaves do you have imagine he asked like that <laughs> seven they replied he told the crowd to sit down and the same thing happens and he feeds tons of people with very little bread and fish here's the point I think Jesus is trying to tell his disciples again and again and again every time they come to him with a human solution to a heavenly problem he's saying to them would you stop asking me to do it you do it yourself you are the solution to the problem step up and start thinking like people who belong to heaven and the question is how how do we do that how did the disciples go from this which is pretty hard to read to acts where they're seeing thousands of people come to faith, where they're seeing the lame war, where they're seeing dead people rise, where they're seeing incredible miracles. How have they gone from this unbelief, inability to think as they should be thinking, to acts? Well, here's how we don't do it. And the answer is essentially in a little clue that Jesus puts in in Mark 8. He's explaining the difference between the miracle of the 4,000 and the miracle of the 5,000. And he says this straight after the miracle of the 4,000. Uh, verse 14. The disciples have forgotten to bring bread. They're obsessed with bread. Just bread everywhere. It's like too much bread. Except for one loaf. Stop thinking about the bread. I'd imagine he'd say. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said it's because we've got no bread still don't get it aware of their discussion Jesus asked them why are you talking about having no bread stop with the bread do you see do you not see or understand are your hearts hardened do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear and don't you remember and then he gets them to do a little bit of math which confuses me but they seem to be quite good at it actually when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand how many basketfuls or pieces did you pick up twelve they replied and then when I broke the seven loads for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? 
And I would be there and I'd be like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm still stuck on the sum. I have no idea what you're talking about. Here's what he's saying. Miracle one, feeding the 5,000, okay? You had less food, there were more people to feed, and you had more left over as a result. Huge miracle, massive miracle, lots happened. Miracle number two, okay? You had less people, you had more food to feed them with, yet you had less basketfuls left over. What's he saying now? He's saying miracle number two of the 4,000 was less of a miracle than miracle number one. Something has happened, and it's meant that God is moving in less power here, more power here. So what has happened in between? Well, the clue is in that line where Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Because in between these two miracles, if you read Mark, Jesus essentially has a massive argument with the Pharisees. And they're arguing about the food laws. Essentially, the Pharisees believe that if you were to fulfill these certain food laws, then you would be holy in the sight of God. You'd be able to actually connect with God. And Jesus is saying, you've totally misunderstood the meaning of the law. I am the fulfillment of the law. Completely misunderstood it. So what's he saying when he says, be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees? He's saying, beware of the thinking of religion. If I want you to think like someone who belongs to heaven, you can't be thinking like someone who's religious. Because someone who's religious essentially treats God as though he is up there. And if I do these certain steps, then I am able to tick all the right boxes in order to be able to get close to God. Jesus says that completely undermines what the gospel is all about. Why? Partly because it's impossible. Partly because it creates a slippery slope in our heart. Because as we're going up the ladder, we realize that there's always someone higher up the ladder. There's always someone who's doing better than us, closer to God, and we feel disheartened. But also, there's always someone lower down on the ladder that we can pity and look down upon and say you are not doing as well and we get pride in our hearts beware of the thinking of the religious because why it stops God using you in power and then he also says beware of the thinking of the Herodians what the Herodians all about essentially these were Jewish people who had assimilated into the culture of the Roman Empire and basically they become politically one and the same as King Herod as the, as the empire to keep peace but also to enable to, themselves to have power so he's saying don't go to religion in your mindset when you're trying to think about these problems don't go to the culture because if you go to the culture if you start thinking like secular culture then you're going to think like someone who belongs to earth but you guys don't belong to earth you belong to heaven essentially what he's saying is change your thinking you need to completely change your mindset but the question still remains how do we do that seems quite hard to do well here's how Jesus did it next story along Mark chapter 9 and this is where the mountain comes in notice in Mark how Jesus regularly goes up a mountain or a hillside And we're told by Mark that he goes up there to pray. We don't really know what happens when he prays. But here we get a first glimpse of what's happening when he goes up and he prays. So from verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John. This time he's taken some friends so they can see it. With him, they led and he led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Now that word transfigured in the Greek is metamorpho. It basically means he's completely transformed before their eyes. It's the same word that we get for metamorphosis, which is where we see caterpillars go into butterflies. It's a total transformation. Before they walk up the mountain with Jesus and he's human and they get to the top of the mountain, he starts praying and he's transfigured. He's transformed in front of them. And what happens? This is what happens. His clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them and there appeared before 
before them, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because he was so frightened. Why was he frightened? Well, he's frightened because he knows the significance of what's happening on the mountainside. You see, thousands of years later, Moses, who appears in this moment on the mountainside, went up another mountain, Mount Sinai, to get the law from God. And as he's getting the instructions and the law for the people of God, the people of Israel, he says to God, can I please see your glory? And God says to him, you can't see my glory because if you do see my glory, you'll surely die. Instead, I'll pass by, but you can only see my back. And so Moses experiences the back of the glory of God and he goes down the mountain and his face is literally on fire as a result. It's reflecting the glory of God to the extent that he has to wear a veil when he talks to everyone else. And as a result of that experience, they start setting up a tabernacle where they would believe that in the middle of the tabernacle, the literal power and the presence of God would would reside. And so therefore when they went in, they were experiencing the power and the presence of God, but it was a dangerous place to be. It was incredibly dangerous. So when Peter there is frightened, he has every reason to be frightened. Because later on the tabernacle became a temple and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, which was the most powerful point of the presence of God. And even the high priest, they would tie a rope to his ankle in case he died in the presence of God so they could pull him back out again so they wouldn't lose him in there. It was a powerful place. It's scary. Peter's terrified. He can't believe what's happening. Let's put some tents up. That word tent is exactly the same Greek word as the Hebrew word for tabernacle. Let's build a temple. This is worship that's happening. Now here's the major difference. Whereas Moses went up the mountain, saw the glory of God, came down reflecting the glory of God, Jesus goes up the mountain and instead of just reflecting the glory of God, he literally emanates and produces the presence and power of God. What's that saying to us? That's saying that Jesus is the image and likeness of God the Father. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. So it makes sense that Jesus knows he belongs to heaven. Why? Because he spends time worshipping. And as he worships, he's transformed. His whole body and mind and mindset and heart is transformed so that he knows that he belongs to heaven. So when he sees problems on earth, things that don't look like heaven, because our job is anything that doesn't look like uh, heaven, essentially we're to bring heaven to it. We're bringing heaven and earth back together again. Jesus knows that he belongs not to earth, he belongs to heaven. And so therefore he thinks like someone who belongs to heaven. He has the mindset of someone who belongs to heaven but that still begs the question how do we do it if that's how Jesus did it how do we do it well I think we do it by engaging in the same process by worshipping here's a classic kind of um, passage on worship this is Romans 12 this is my last bit from the bible Paul essentially wrote Romans and for the first 11 chapters he's outlining everything that God has done in the person of Jesus. All the incredible things that means for us as the people of God and then at the end of chapter 11 it's literally like he can't contain himself and he starts his spontaneous praise and he starts singing to God. He starts praising God and then in chapter 12 verse 1 he says this, Therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy... In view of everything that God has done on the cross, Jesus has done on the cross, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, he's saying. What's he saying there? He says, don't think like the religious think. Don't think that this is about you. Because as soon as you start thinking it's about you, you're going to be burdened with religion. You're going to start thinking, when you're not doing well, it's not going to happen. When you're doing really well, you think it's going to be about you. Don't be burdened with that. Don't be conformed by the pattern of the world. Also, don't be conformed by secular thinking. Don't think that you have to assimilate into the culture. Here's the problem with Christianity. We're not supposed to look like everyone else out there. This is where what Pete's saying about the coronavirus is so crucial for us. Where everyone else is panicking, everyone else is entertaining fear. As Christians, we should be saying, how can we bring heaven into this situation? It's a total change of mindset. How do we get that mindset? When we worship, we give our lives to him, and then it says this, verse 2. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word transformed is exactly the same word as what happens to Jesus when he's transfigured. Transfigured, transformed, metamorphic. Be completely renewed, changed from the inside out. What will that do? It will mean we have a change of mindset. We literally, as Paul says in the letter to Corinthians, he says, you have now, as a result of you giving your life to Jesus, the mind of Christ. Our minds are the minds of Christ. It's the mind of Christ. Then what will happen, we'll be able to attest and approve what God's will is. His good, perfect and pleasing will. Here's basically what that's saying. Essentially Paul's saying that you become what you worship. If you worship money, if you reorient your whole life around getting more money, satisfying all your desires with money, then it makes sense that your mind will be filled with thoughts of how you can get more money. If you're losing it, all you're thinking is about getting it back. If you've got it, all you're thinking really about is getting more. You're worshipping money. If you worship your career, then your mind becomes consumed with how you can progress in your career. How you can become more successful in your career. You reorient all your decision making, all of your life around that one thing. And you start to think like someone who needs their career in order to be able to feel worth something. That's what it means when you worship. You give worth to it. You allow it to define who you really are. You belong to it. Do you want to belong to money? Do you want to belong to your career? What about relationships? If you worship relationships, you give it the power to change your identity. You begin to belong to those relationships. What that means is, when they're going really well, you feel great about things. But inevitably, as with all relationships in humanity, when they don't go well and you start to experience problems, what happens? You become worthless. You feel worthless. Because you've given it the power to give you your sense of belonging and identity. So here's the difference. This is what Paul's saying. When you worship Jesus, when you offer your body as a living sacrifice, what does that mean? It means you reorient your whole life around worship to him. Everything you do becomes about him. Everything you think about becomes because of him. Everything you are doing is reoriented, directed toward Jesus. What will happen then is God will begin to transform your mindset so that you have the mind of Christ. And that is how we start to think like people who belong to heaven and not like people who belong to earth. And this morning we uh, were worshipping and during the week um, somebody had sent me a prophetic word and they said, I feel like God's saying that this Sunday worship's going to kick off 
and we're not going to need a talk. We're going to have to just abandon the talk and do what God's doing. And at the point of that kind of um, prophecy coming in, I was actually writing my talk. So I thought, brilliant, I don't have to write a talk. And then as the week progressed, I kind of panicked and doubted the word and wrote a talk anyway. It wasn't a very good one. And so I'm going into Sunday morning. The morning of, I was worshipping and praying for the service um, in my house. And I felt like God say, you need to pray for physical healing this morning. God brought to mind Psalm 103 and essentially the promises of God, the promises of God for those who need healing, that God heals our diseases. And I was praying through that in the morning. I got to the prayer meeting and two people in the prayer meeting said, I feel like God, what God's going to do this morning is physical healing. We get into the worship, we're worshipping away. Two people come up to me on the front row of church and they say, I feel like there's faith in the room for healing. We should pray for physical healing. At which point I'm starting to think, well, perhaps we should pray for healing. And so the worship carries on and it's going on and on and I get up and I say look I feel like there's faith in the room to pray for healing if you need physical healing put your hands up and then we gather around different people and pray for healing now I didn't know this at the time I found out a few minutes later but there was a guy in the congregation called Bishop Carraway now, Bishop Carraway is one of the reasons we are even at St. Peter's in southeast London. He essentially helped us get there. We went to him and said, we feel like God's asking us to plant in the southeast. And he said, I've got just the perfect church for you. He got really excited about revival in southeast London. He started speaking in tongues. How many, well, you probably never met bishops, but if you were to meet a bishop, it's not normal for them to start spontaneously singing in tongues. He did. He was brilliant. Anyway, I loved him. So we got to southeast London, and as soon as we got there, he started progressively getting more and more sick. He had a condition in his heart and eventually he got a clot on his lung and as a result of that he was signed off work and he's been off work really on and off since we've been there and this last stint has been many months in hospital and then he's just been released. Um, During last night he had a dream that he was at St Peter's and he was being prayed for for healing. He woke up in the morning and his wife, Mason, who's an amazing woman, turned to him and said, I feel like God's saying we should go to St. Peter's this morning and we should ask the team to pray for physical healing. And so he gets to our service and as we're worshipping, I stand up and I say, I feel like faith is here for physical healing. And we gathered around, loads of us gathered around Bishop Carraway and we prayed for him for healing. Amazing. I don't know if he's been healed. I, it kind of, we pray for him and we won't know until he gets tested um, for this clot on his lung as to whether it's dissolved or not. But what I do know is that as a church collectively, as we were up on our own respective mountains during the week praying, asking for God to give us confidence in who we really are, we started to engage with Jesus in worship and we were transformed by the renewing of our minds and we started to understand what his good and perfect will was for our lives. And it came from lots of different directions. And so as a church, if we devote ourselves to worshipping Jesus, as we devote ourselves to this task of giving everything to him as sacrifice in worship, what will happen is collectively our minds will start to become transformed, transfigured, transformed. We will become the people we were always created to be and as a result we will start to think like Jesus thinks. We will start to see earthly problems and come in with, human, with heavenly solutions, not human solutions. We will start to have the mind of Christ and that is how revival starts happening. When we as the church start stepping out and engaging in what God is already doing he's already at work doing it we just need to join in less of asking God to do it more of us stepping out in worship trusting that we have the mind of Christ and doing it ourselves